This is the Breakfast Leadership Podcast. Boundaries or burnout, you make the choice. Here's your host, Michael Levitt. Welcome back. I've got Diane Mulcahy on the line. Diane, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? I am great. You wrote a book amongst many other things that you do in life, uh, and the book's titled The Gig Economy. And with what's going on at this particular point in time with COVID-19, I thought this would be a really good subject to bring up. But we'll start off in, you know, what prompted you to write a book like this? Well, really, the book grew out of an MBA class that I teach uh, at Babson College here in Boston, where I'm based. I started, I created the class and started teaching it about six years ago, so well before it was even a thing. In fact, when I first started the class, nobody knew what I was talking about. They would say, wait, the gig economy? Are you teaching a computer science class, like gigabytes? (laughs) So that just goes (laughs) to show you how far we've come in such a short time. So, you know, I've been teaching the class for several years, and the book really grew out of the topics that resonate uh, with my students and the assignments and the exercises that I have them do and the discussions that we have in class. And it's, it's very wide ranging. Um, it goes from, you know, individuals who want to move into the gig economy, you know, companies that are figuring out how to deal with a distributed workforce to policy issues. So quite broad ranging. Yeah. And it's, I've seen it and I remember those days and you know, a few years ago, you said gig economy. I would have thought the same thing having worked in the IT industry for a long time, but I know, you know, what it looks like. And I've observed over time, especially in the work that I do with individuals and executives that are burning out that a lot of people are looking for different options once they figure out whether or not they want to continue working for an organization or working for an individual and they want to branch out on their own. And there's a lot of work involved with that. And I I think a lot of people don't recognize the amount of work that it actually takes to launch a business. And then of course, do everything you can to make sure that it's successful. So in some of the research that you, you did with this is, you know, what were some of the common things that you saw with people and why they were uh, venturing out and, and and starting to make that transition from the traditional working for somebody getting a W-2 at the end of the year to doing different type of work and having a different way of working than is different than anything we've ever seen before. Yeah, I mean, I think like anything the you know, the traditional way of working just doesn't work for everybody. There, you know, once, once the gig economy kind of emerged over the past several years as a viable alternative, as a way to structure your professional life, the people for whom traditional work really wasn't working started looking uh, at that as an alternative and moving in that direction. And, uh, you know, we're seeing that more and more. If you, if you, if you look at the data that's available. And I found this in my own research. And there's certainly, you know, since then been a lot of surveys of independent workers um, for them to be able to describe why they chose to leave full-time employment and work independently. And the main factors are really around uh, control. So control over the work that they do, 
who they work with and how much, when, and where they work. So having control over your person, over your professional life then gives you control also over your personal life. Um, so control is, is a big reason. And then along with that goes the flexibility and the autonomy. So that I think that all I would group under control, but really just being able to make decisions about how you want to structure your life, personal and professional, is a big driver. Interestingly, another important factor is a greater sense of security and financial stability. And I think we're seeing that play out right now in the middle of this crisis. Um, For many people, they really feel like uh, working for one employer is risky. I I know there's a common perception that if you have a full-time job and a paycheck that everything is stable and that you're secure, but that really is a perception more than reality. And we're seeing that now because at any time, you know, you can be laid off. Your job is constantly at risk. So for people who feel like working a full-time job represents a concentrated risk that they don't want to take, structuring a professional life where they have a portfolio of work and therefore diverse income streams can allow them to feel like they have greater control over their financial security and that they are taking on less financial risk. So those are some of the big drivers that are, um, I would say, pulling people towards working independently in the gig economy. And by the way, I should just mention that when, you know, when I talk about the gig economy, I'm not just talking about Uber drivers. It really is anybody who works independently. So you could be an independent contractor, a consultant, a freelancer, an on-demand worker, you know, somebody who has a side gig, who has hung out their own shingle. You know, it's, it's really all encompassing the way that I talk about it. Yeah. And thank you for explaining that out a little bit too, because I think a lot of people uh, initially, when they look at this, they're thinking, okay, somebody that drives for a food delivery service or one of the you know, car ride-sharing things. And you brought up a few great points that I want to dive into a little bit. But one thing that I've noticed too and with the work that I do with people is sometimes the desire to you know, be your own boss and launch your own business is driven from this feeling that your employer doesn't trust you to do your job. So they micromanage you all of the time. And we're seeing that even right now during COVID-19 with the really long hours, the countless Zoom meetings and everything else where management is not trusting their employees to do their work because they they've lost the ability to be able to walk over to the cubicle to see if they're in their desk doing work. And I, as silly as that sounds, I know organizations that did that. I worked for organizations that did that. And it, that's no way to have a relationship. It's such an imbalance from the employer and employee where the, the power definitely tends to lie a little bit more on the employer side of things. And with the gig economy and having a portfolio of different things where you are a contractor for somebody, you've got a little bit more control and what you're doing. And I love the thing that you highlighted too about diversifying your income streams. And because gone are the work one place, 25 years, get a gold watch and all of that good stuff. That doesn't typically happen anymore. So for many of us, we have multiple careers and multiple jobs that we've worked at. And 
I, I think it's it gives some people some permission to like, okay, let's get past the safety net of a quote unquote one employer and design how you want to work your life because if you have that flexibility, the quality of work that you do actually improves. I've seen it with myself and with people that I know and talk with is the quality of work improves because they're constantly working on just what they want to work on. You know, they can say, okay, I only want to work on Excel spreadsheets. So I'm going to be a contractor for a finance company and that's what I'm going to work on. And they love it. And there's other people that would run as far and as fast away from those spreadsheets as they could because that's not what they want to do. But if they're working for an employer, that might be one of their job duties and they end up spending day in, day out just doing things that they don't particularly care to do. Yeah, and I I think the issue that you raised about uh, trust and productivity, those are all really critical issues that are a huge challenge in the traditional jobs economy. And again, I think that's another issue that is being brought to light and exposed as a result of this crisis and the, the incredibly rapid and widespread uh, transition to working at home. And I, I think what's most interesting about it, and, and I talk to senior executives and, and HR professionals about this all the time, what's so interesting is that all of the data suggests that remote workers are more engaged, they're more productive, they are happier, they're healthier, they're more loyal, like all of these characteristics that companies seek in their workers can be found in remote workers. And, you know, not one study, and I can tell you this because I have looked, uh, not one study says that working traditionally in an office for five days a week, eight hours a day, maximizes anything that matters to employers or to employees. It doesn't maximize happiness, engagement, productivity, meaning that people find in their work, uh, well-being, health and well-being of the employees, nothing. It doesn't maximize anything. And it's so interesting that companies are still very stuck on this model. And I, you know, have discovered that trust is is really the huge issue that's driving that. And among managers, there is an enormous lack of trust with their with their workers. That comes out when people want to work remotely. Because the other interesting finding is that executives and managers have no idea what their employees are doing when they're in the office. There's a complete lack of data collection and analysis to understand, you know, what are people doing in the office? How many meetings are they in? With whom? How many hours are they spending doing that? What are they doing on their computers? How much time are they spending on the phone? I mean, all of this data is available. Everybody, every employee has the the software on their computer to collect that and to aggregate it and analyze it and look at teams and productivity and really get an understanding of what employees do. If you really do, you know, feel like you need to figure out what your employees are doing because you don't trust it. But companies aren't doing that. Yet, when employees leave and they work remotely, all of a sudden, there's there's this kind of 
uproar around, we have no idea what our employees are doing when they're working remotely. (laughs) So it's the same issue, but suddenly when they work remotely, it's a concern. So there's a huge inconsistency there, which suggests that it's not logical, it's not rational, and in fact, it is based on a sense of trust uh, that people are doing what they should be doing and they're managing their work in a way that allows them to get it done. You know, the trust has always been a big issue. And I, I, I think back to a boss that I had 20 years ago, uh, Rick Elert, And I remember my first day and I worked in IT support uh, for that organization. And it was around 3.30 in the afternoon on my first day. And he came by my cubicle and he said, look, I don't care when you get in here. I don't care when you go home. As long as you get your work done, we're good. And that was his way of saying, I trust you to come Mm -hmm. in, be a professional, do your job to the best of your ability. If you have questions, you know, send me a page. That was back when we had Blackberry pagers uh, to tell you how old that is. Uh, And we, you know, had a great working relationship and worked there for quite a long time. And it was an internet startup company. So lots going on, a lot of moving parts, a lot of changes along the way, but communication was good and he let me do my job and I, I, I can't, you know, I refer to him quite a bit, you know, in, in interviews and conversations because it left a huge mark on me. And it's something that I emulated in, in leadership roles that I've had. It's like, I hire people that I know can do the job. I give them all the tools and techniques that they need to do the job. And then I let them do it. And I stand back and make sure that I'm accessible so that they need it. Even you know a client that I'm helping out virtualized because of COVID-19, we have a weekly check-in call just to kind of see how things are going. Um, they reach out and you know talk to management if something comes up. But other than that, we let them do their job. And I, quite frankly, I've noticed uh, some improvements in some of the work that they're doing because they're working remotely. And it's, it's, a, it's a weird sensation. My only concern is to make sure that they're not you know, working too many hours, like at night and things like that, that there's some boundaries around what they're working. But they're not getting any contact from management after hours, which I know a lot of times that's what's going on right now is managers like again the trust factor are constantly you know reaching out to people okay what are you doing now um it's 7 30 at night um finishing up dinner or putting my kids to bed or something like that what are you doing (laughs) it's 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 silly in a way because uh, these these managers you know lack this trust gene i think and, and it's creating you know, a, a bigger demand for the gig economy. And I, I anticipate that once things start to, you know, shape out into whatever they're going to look like, I don't call it new normal or old normal or anything normal, but whatever, you know, work looks like over the next, you know, few years and, and even decades, I think is going to be shaped by, you know, the behavior of what organizations are doing right now with their employees. And I think there's going to be a, a significant push uh, by individuals and even organizations to go, you know, we might want to revisit, you know, doing things a little bit differently and, and, and embrace the gig economy a little bit more because it gives you um, that specific thing that you need, uh, both as somebody offering a service and an organization that's hiring it. Yeah, I mean, it, 
I think that now that companies have overcome this initial behavioral change, this inertia around allowing remote work and moving to remote work as more of a norm, it will be very difficult to put that genie back in the bottle. It will be very hard, uh, particularly if the company has done reasonably well during this admittedly less than ideal experiment and very stressful time. If the company has done it all well under these circumstances, it will be almost impossible to turn around and say to their workforce, okay, everybody back to the office. There simply won't be the data that suggests that that's required. And before this uh, crisis, you know, employees were really the ones that were pushing for the flexibility and the opportunity to work remotely, at least part of the time. And I think that really will become the new norm. And, you know, as a result of this, companies have hopefully seen some of the benefits that they can realize by having remote workers, right? They can access a broader talent pool. It's easier to staff up and staff down. They can save on commercial real estate costs. Their employees are happier and, you know, uh, more engaged and more loyal because they want to be able to to work remotely. I think the biggest challenge will be that management, you know, the way that employees are managed has to change. I mean, part of the part of the lack of trust comes from not really scoping work appropriately for somebody who's not in front of you every day. You know, when you have remote workers, you have to be much more conscious and explicit about how you're scoping the work project, what the deliverables are, what the interim milestones are, and what the final results are that you're looking for. Because that's how you're going to measure somebody. The way that we work every day in an office isn't that explicit. It's usually more fluid, it's more implicit, and those goals and milestones aren't as obvious and clear. And that's why there's this, you know, it sort of fosters this micromanagement culture. You really can't have that with remote workers. So it does require a fundamental shift in the way that we think about structuring and organizing work and then the way that we measure uh, and evaluate people, you know, which is really much more about results and deliverables and much less about, you know, are they in the office five days a week and what's their face time like and, and how good are they at office politics? So ultimately I think it's a great shift, but like any behavior change, you know, there's inertia and resistance around it. Um, and, and hopefully this has gotten through, you know, this crisis has forced us through a lot of that. That's the hope coming out of this. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that there's going to be a lot of difficulty trying to go back to the way things were. I think you're going to have a lot of individuals revolt against it. And I, a couple things flush out from this exercise. I think one, obviously, if senior leadership's paying attention, it does flush out uh, some of the challenges that uh, the management has been creating because uh, there's a pressure from employees that are working remotely. It's like, okay, they just, you know, I, I remember this when I first started working remotely was I need to make sure that I can prove that I'm actually doing something. And oftentimes you end up working more uh, to prove it instead of having clear defined outcomes from management of what you're supposed to do as an employee. And I, I think that 
a lot of employees have been lacking that clear direction for a long time. And this, this particular situation has kind of highlighted it a bit. And you had mentioned commercial real estate. I think that's one industry that's really going to have a huge adjustment period because I think the organizations that do recognize that one, they can have people working remotely more and or utilize uh, gig workers a bit will reduce the need of square footage that they need in a lot of these high rises, whether it's in Boston, New York, Toronto, LA, wherever. So that's going to be a really interesting industry to see how they navigate around that uh, once demand starts to drop off, because I anticipate that it will. One last question before we wrap up, and this is uh, advice that you would give people that would be considering, you know, starting, you know, doing some gig work. What's some things that they can do to, at least ensure that they will have the opportunity to be successful. By no means are we guaranteeing that you will be successful if you want to launch your own business. We, we've seen the stats um, and most of them do fail. But you know, what are some things that you've seen that successful uh, entrepreneurs have done when they've launched um, their gig careers? Yeah. Um, so I have a couple of steps. I mean, I think the first step is that if you are somebody who is currently in a full-time job and you're thinking about making the transition, the first step is to put together an exit strategy. And what I mean by that is a plan to leave your current situation and transition into working independently. And by the way, I think having an exit strategy at all times is generally a good idea because it allows you to take control of your destiny. And if something should happen to your full-time job, uh, you're laid off or your company changes or gets acquired, whatever it is, you're prepared. Um, so the, the exercise that I give my students to help them think about that is to imagine that your boss came up to you, you know, today and said, in six months, you're out of a job, you're going to be laid off. What are the things that you would do to prepare for that financially, professionally, personally, socially, you know, what are all the different steps that you would take to make sure that you were in the best position that you could be to weather that change and to create the next opportunity for yourself and start doing those things now. So that's the first piece of advice I would give to, to people who are already in an, who are already in a full-time job. The second piece of advice is to always have a side gig. It's easiest, it's lower cost, and it's low risk to experiment with doing something independently while you're in the comfort and security of a full-time job, of a situation that you already know well and that you've already been living in. So the idea is to think about what you would like to do as an independent worker and to just start experimenting with that on the side. And it, what it does is it gives you a chance to better define what it is you'd like to do and then test the market. You know, is this a product or service that people have demand for? How much demand? Are they willing to pay for it? How much are they willing to pay for it? You know, how hard is it for me to gain traction in the market and get customers? Is the sales cycle really long? So questions like that you can answer by having a side gig and just really, instead of thinking about it as all or nothing, you know, I'm either a full-time employee or I'm going out on my own and hanging out my own shingle, think of it as more experimental, iterative, what can I learn 
What can I take away? And how can I refine my business model? And then the third step I would suggest is don't be a hero. (laughs) I mean, I think one of the impediments for going out on your own and working independently for many people is that there's a whole list of things that they don't imagine or they know that they're not going to like doing. So they say, look, I'd love to, you know, have my own customers and control my own work, but I really hate marketing or I'm not a good business developer or I I can't stand the idea that I'll have to manage my own books and run my own business and, you know, figure out when to pay taxes. Those, Those tasks just seem really onerous to me. And, you know, my suggestion is don't be a hero, get help. It's so easy now, uh, whether you're going on to uh, platforms that match, you know, people with projects to workers or putting out the word to your network to find people that can help you on a very uh, interim, short term or ad hoc kind of basis. I mean, you can get a social media person for two hours a week to help you manage your presence online. You can get somebody to help you with QuickBooks, you know, for four hours a month to help you make sure that you get your back office up and running and keep things organized. You can work with a marketing person who helps independent people, you know, get their, get their name and their message and their brand out there. So all of these things are now easily found and widely available and reasonably priced. So if you're thinking about going out independently, don't let those things that you know you're not good at or you don't like to do stop you. Just think about how do I build a team and a network of help around me to make sure that those things are done and done well and that I get to focus on the things that I really care about and do well myself. That's incredible advice. And I definitely second that with the, don't be here on and hire that stuff out just because you can do it. Doesn't mean you should. And <laughs> what it does is it allows you to focus in your, your zone, your sweet spot, the, what you wanted to do in the first place. And my first career was public accounting. So I did the taxes and audits and corporate returns and financial statements and all that stuff. And I can't stand doing that because I, you know, did it for for a career for so long. And now it's like, nope, hand it over. You know, and then I just say, you you guys do it because you're more up to date on all the little loopholes and tax laws and everything like that. And it just makes it easier for me. And then that way I don't have to focus on anything other than paying for it. And it's worth every nickel uh, because it, it saves me the angst and, okay, well, what about this? It's like, is this a good expense or no? It's like, here, here, here's everything in it and, you know, make it look pretty and, you know, minimize the pain if you could, please. But, you know, it's all good. So Diane, I've loved our conversation today. Where can people find out more about you and this awesome work that you're doing? Yeah, um, the best place to keep up with the work that I do is on my website, which is dianemulcahy.com. The gig economy is available online at independent bookstores on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Um, And I'm also on Twitter at at Diane Mulcahy. And I'll have that information in the show notes. Diane, thank you again so much for for everything and for bringing more awareness to these opportunities for people, especially now uh, as people... 
you know, are sitting at home and, you know, contemplating what they want to do next, this is a, a great opportunity for people to, to revisit and, and, and take some opportunities to do some things that's better for them and it'll, the society will benefit from it as well. I agree. It's, it, it turns out it's a timely conversation. So thanks for having me. Thank you. Hey, it's Michael again. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. If you're like many people, you're dealing with some significant stress and possibly approaching burnout. I know how you feel. In 2009, my burnout led to a year of worst-case scenarios. I do not want that to happen to you. If you go to breakfastleadership.com, you can register for a free webinar on burnout prevention, as well as get a free checklist to have successful mornings. Start off each day the right way. Again, that's at breakfastleadership.com. Also, since you are a loyal podcast listener, I'm asking you to like, rate, and review my podcast on iTunes. I look at all the reviews and appreciate your comments, and it helps other potential listeners discover the content I have on the show. I appreciate you, and thanks again for listening.